Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, And in today's episode, I'm so happy to have co-host Dr. Stephanie Wyrock back in the hosting seat. This podcast was uh, her idea because she has been seeing uh, this patient population and really wanted to learn from the experts. So in this episode... We have Dr. Stephanie Wyrock. She's the vice president of the APTA Connecticut chapter and a physical therapist, CEO of Inclusive Care, Dr. Christina Holland, uh, and obstetrics and gynecology faculty member at Denver Health, Dr. Jennifer Heyer, to talk about bottom surgery, specifically uh, vaginoplasty and gender-affirming care. So today we talk about vaginoplasty complications expectations of before and after surgery, what the pelvic floor goals are post-surgery, and what barriers trans people face when trying to access gender-affirming health care. We talk about preoperative education, hysterectomy versus vaginoplasty outcomes, and of course, trauma-informed care. So this was a great conversation. Huge thank yous to... uh, all, all the doctors, Dr. Wyrack, Dr. Holland, and Dr. Heyer. So many key takeaways. If you are working with this population, with the trans community, this is a must listen. If you are not working with the trans community yet, it's still a must listen because people will be coming through your doors and you should feel comfortable and inclusive and have a better understanding on how to treat this population. So thank you to everyone for taking the time out and giving your time with the podcast. And of course, thank you to all the listeners. Uh, Any thoughts, questions, head over to our podcast website, podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. Leave a comment. Find us on uh, social media. You can find everything at the show notes under this episode. Again, that's podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. Hello, Dr. Wyrock, back for another great interview. Always happy to have you. And welcoming for the first time onto the podcast, Dr. Christina Holland, um, who I was with when I bought my first hat. I know it was a big deal, but I was <laughs> with her in Denver and bought this great hat. Um, and also uh, joining us today is Dr. Jen Heyer. Uh, so thank you both for joining us for our conversation today on uh, bottom surgery and gender affirming care. And to start things off, I'm going to throw it over to Stephanie, um, as this was the her this podcast is her brainchild. So Stephanie, I will throw it over to you to start. Yeah. Well, thanks guys for joining us today. So kind of what I was thinking with this podcast and why it was something that I wanted to talk to Karen about was I'm getting more and more patients in my practice that are looking for pelvic floor physical therapy and are undergoing gender affirming uh, surgeries. And it's not really a topic that I feel a lot of healthcare professionals know about. 
especially with some of these stories that I've heard from my patients telling me that they've had healthcare providers that they've told that they were going to be receiving gender affirming care and the healthcare provider didn't want to treat them because they didn't feel comfortable treating them. And if we're gonna continue to improve our healthcare system, we need to make sure that we can provide the proper care to this population. And so I'm really happy and excited that you guys are able to join us today. And I'd like to just start off by asking you how you got into treating this population and some of the collaborations that you two have worked on together in making sure that these, this population gets the healthcare that they need. Jen, why don't you, you start? I think your story is really interesting. Okay. Um, so I'm an OBGYN by training. Um, and I started um, with gender affirming care, initially taking care of transmasculine patients or patients assigned female at birth. And um, to me, it was really a no brainer. We, uh, you know, I do hysterectomies anyway. And I was like, how great. And this is a surgery that can uh, lower someone's risk of suicide and depression. And like, gosh, yes, please. How can I help this? You know, let, yes, I'll do this. And then shortly after that, um, the, the hospital where I was working was interested in bringing in um, vaginoplasty for gender affirming bottom surgery for folks assigned male at birth. And, um, through, you know, the stars aligned and we were able to collaborate with Dr. Marcy Bowers, who is really a pioneer in this field and has done so much to help so many people, including educating, you know, other surgeons. So we partnered with her and um, that was four and a half years ago. So we've been, I've been doing this surgery since May of 2018 and it's been really great you know, I've met so many amazing people and, um, we have a ton of folks that need care. And at the genesis of our program, we actually started physical therapy I mean, the physical therapists were involved with us in designing our program, designing our post-op care, because at the time we were already co-located with physical therapists in our office. And it was just a really, um, logical thing for us. And it's, we've never looked back. Every patient sees a physical therapist. Yeah. Which was really cool as a physical therapist, as a physical therapist. Um, I had randomly connected with the physical therapist who is part of this program. I had just moved to Denver. I got involved in April. My first day was April 1, 2019. So I guess not too terribly long after the program started, um, and I had known that I wanted to work with trans folks more generally as um, kind of a way to improve health equity. I knew that that care for trans folks was not good. I didn't know the extent to which it was not good, but I knew that there were limited options. Um, and so that was kind of part of my my broader career plan. Um, and so it was I, but I didn't actually know how I was going to do that. So it was very lucky for me that I ended up at coffee with this person who's a dear colleague and now also a dear friend. Um, and she ultimately got me involved in the program at, at the hospital with Dr. Heyer. Great stories. So Dr. Heyer, tell us a little bit about the surgery, the vaginoplasty. How is the surgery performed? What are um, some common complications that can happen? What are some uh, expectations post-surgery post, uh, that you typically tell your patients about? 
Um, so the surgery I do is called penile inversion vaginoplasty. Um, so essentially what, uh, and there are other forms of vaginoplasty where the vagina can be made with peritoneum that's called peritoneal pull through, or there, um, some places will use bowel, um, for, um, the vaginal tissue, but I'm only going to speak to what the surgery I do. So for penile inversion, vaginoplasty, we essentially, the neovagina is made from scrotal skin that is like cleaned off and defatted and we sew it on a dilator and then sew that to in the penile skin, which is how it gets the name penile inversion vaginoplasty. And then um, the labia are made um, with the inverted penile skin as well. And clitoris is made with the glands of the penis. And then we do a large dissection um, between the prostate and the rectum to create that space for the neovagina. Um, in terms of complications, there's the complications that are, you know, you need that apply to all surgeries, pain, bleeding, infection, damage to internal organs, but specific to vaginoplasty, it's really important that folks dilate post-op. Um, the, it's been, I've had some pretty, um, you know, tragic cases where folks didn't dilate and that space closes quickly. And I don't, I don't know and I don't understand because, you know, I only see people at points in time and I don't always know what they've been doing in terms of dilation, but I'll have people say like, oh, I dilate. I've, I've missed maybe one time, which post-op, they're supposed to be dilating three times a day for 12 weeks, but they come in and there's just no vagina. And, it, you know, I believe them that they have been dilating, but I, I don't know what's been going on. So that's a complication um, that is pretty tragic and heartbreaking. Um, they can also get stenosis around the introitus, depending on um, their comfort level with the dilator and moving up with the dilators. Cause you know, they're, they're fighting their body, which is trying to heal. Um, the grafts typically take very well because it's a full thickness skin graft. So that's one of the I feel like major successes of this surgery is that we have this beautiful graft of tissue to use. Um, and so I don't see a lot of problems with prolapse or, or that, but folks can also get infections, especially I see that um, with people that don't do hair removal. So hair removal is pretty costly um, and some people just, they can't afford it. And, um, so that can happen with infection and, and any sort of setback you have will delay the progress of the healing and the surgery and getting you to the space that you want to be. So Christina, as a pelvic floor physical therapist, is this something that you help patients, um, do you help them reach these goals or what's some of the goals that you help patients postoperatively reach when they have this surgery? Yeah. So from the very beginning, it's a lot of patient education about wound care. What I, what I, so one of the things I really love about vaginoplasty patients and working with vaginal patients after vaginoplasty in general is that it's like such a full scope of physical therapy because you have the wound care element, you have the musculoskeletal contributions to whatever their body was doing before. There is likely to Dr. Heyer's point about, um, you know, fighting the healing process that there is this like new open wound that you are now inserting a, a plastic acrylic dilator into three times a day for 12 weeks immediately post-op is 
just wild, right? So there can often be some sort of like vaginismus involuntary contraction type of component. Um, there can also be like any other number of things that we that we see in people in general. You could have low back pain if the person has a mobility concern on the front end. Um, like it really is just so much physical therapy. Um, so yeah, the way that I typically describe it to patients is that my job is to help you reach the goals that you set for yourself. So if your goal is to have penetrative, receptive, penetrative vaginal intercourse, I'm here to help you do that. If your goal is to maintain your vaginal depth for appearance and for the potential, but actually you don't like participating in receptive, penetrative vaginal intercourse, intercourse, that's okay. We're not going to make that a, a goal for you. So um, I help people be able to do all of those things as well as be able to, um, you know, maintain continence as well as be able to empty completely. We see a lot of folks who might have some urinary hesitancy with tension in their pelvic floor muscles, just like we anticipate with cisgender women um, and or cisgender men for that matter. Um, so, yeah, so I a whole bunch of things is the kind of short answer. And what is typically the amount of time that you typically will see patients for? Yeah. So it was really lucky in the hospital that I could see them for really as long as I needed to. Um, I was seeing folks. So at seven days, seven days post-op when they had their packing removed um, and then helping them dilate for the first time, I was then seeing them typically, it kind of depends because people will often travel from really far away. So they might not always have access to come back and see me in my, in my ideal situation, I would see them again, ideal, but conservative in a public hospital. Let me clarify all of the, the systemic things happening there. Um, one week after their packing has been removed to make sure that things are going well, because oftentimes they're still quite numb um, after when the packing is removed. Uh, and then again, at four weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, assuming that like nothing else is, is going poorly or is unexpected. Um, and so it's interesting though, I'm no longer in that, in that same hospital system. So I still see trans folks and I still see folks after vaginoplasty. I'm now, however, typically seeing them. I feel very grateful for this, that because they can be seen at the hospital where Dr. Hire works, they're typically seeing me either from a different surgeon or a different place or years after the fact. Um, and that duration of time that they're being seen also very much depends on insurance. So Colorado has really, really great Medicaid and has really good, um, actually like legislation around what insurances have to cover for, uh, gender affirming surgeries. And so that's something that's also very special, um, about Colorado, care in Colorado more specifically. Oh, yes. Let's talk about the barriers that this population faces. I know that with some of the stories that I've heard with my patients, they just absolutely break my heart. What are some barriers that trans folks face when trying to access healthcare, gender affirming healthcare? I think um, for us in terms of getting surgery, barriers include hair removal, being able to pay for the hair removal, um, being able to afford to take time off from work, also social support. So I really do talk to people about who is your tribe, you know, who's going to help you. No one else needs to be wiping your bottom. No one else needs to be um, dilating your vagina, but who's going to come by and check on you. Who's going to make sure there's food, warm food for you. Who's going to walk the dog. Who's going to do the house, you know, the, the life around you. And 
some people have nobody like who's going to pick you up from the hospital. I don't know anyone. I'm going to take a lift. I'm like, that's not an option. You have six months till surgery. Talk to your family, find someone. And, you know, sometimes people do, and sometimes they don't. And I think that's the hard thing is like this, those that are socially isolated, those that have financial constraints, um, we don't offer this service to folks that are unhoused um, because of the logistics around all the care that you need. And, you know, you need to be close to a bathroom and a toilet and clean water. And, and um, so I think off the top of my head, those are the, the biggest barriers. I mean, in addition to there aren't that many people who are qualified and doing the surgery or providing the care. Um I mean, I've been really surprised at how few pelvic floor physical therapists like are doing this type of care. I it's a new, it's also a newer science and a newer medicine. And so, um, you know, access, true access, not only like from a perspective of, uh, being able to afford it, but also being able to find it anywhere near you, um, I think is also a really big barrier. And that's not even, and that's, I think a little bit more specific to vaginoplasty, but then if you add in, you know, the amount of trauma that trans individuals experience, um, in the world at large, let alone in the medical system specifically. So like that becomes then a barrier to them being able to get more care. Just like you were saying, Stephanie, around like, it's so vulnerable to have to, to call providers and say, Hey, will you help me? And for them to say, no, I won't like, because of something about your identity, I just can't, like, mm -hmm. it makes me really upset to be so honest with you. Um, so the, the high levels of trauma could definitely impact care, um, as well as like uh, the, the willingness and resiliency, both physically and emotionally to be being able to navigate a systems that are very complicated. And how do, this is a question for both of you. How do you, um, Dr. Heyer, in your case, maybe preoperatively, how are you setting expectations for recovery? And Christina, the same, when someone's coming to you in that first week post-op, what are you saying to them to set those expectations? Because I know every time I've had a surgery, if I had a doctor who set very clear expectations of this may happen on, you know, a week from now or two weeks from now, if this happens, uh, call me, if this doesn't happen, do you know what I mean? So how mm -hmm. are you kind of setting those expectations with your patients? Because I have to imagine that may help this very vulnerable population feel a little more confident in their uh, in their surgery and post-operative care. Well, for me, when I'm meeting people at the pre-op, I describe the surgery. I talk about the immediate post-op care in the hospital, talk about when you go home. I really, I always talk to people about what's your job? Who's your support? Can you take 12 weeks off? And I really harp on it and say, listen, you only have one time in your life to be post-op. This is the time when you really need to be dilating three times a day. And sometimes it's not just a five minute. Some people spend an hour every day, hour or three times a day. And I'll say to them, like, you know, at work, you're not going to be able to do this. And so I, I just flat out tell them what I think they should do. And then they have to tell me what they're able to do. Cause some people are like, I can't, I can't miss that much work. Um, I'm going to go back. This is my plan. And I say, okay, but you need to know you might lose vaginal depth. And if you do, I can't help you to get it back because 
my practice has been because I use um, the scrotal skin for the neovagina that's gone. And so I, and we also um, give folks handouts um, about dilating, you know, tips, and we're constantly going over things. And then also maintaining a really open communication. We have my chart, we have a phone number they can call, um, you know, just say, please call me before it gets, if you're having a problem, if you're noticing you're losing vaginal depth, please come in. Don't stay at home and wait for your appointment in two weeks. So I think that's the biggest thing is like open communication, giving them a printed out, multiple ways of getting information across. Yeah. And post-operatively, even if you just think about tissue healing anywhere, most the layperson doesn't know about the stages of tissue healing. Right. And people are always like for any surgery ever, it's like, is this normal? How would they know? They've never mm-hmm. had the surgery before. They're not a professional who knows what the tissue is supposed to be doing. And in addition to that, the, a lot of the incisions for vaginoplasty and a lot of the like new tissue is on the inside of their body where they can't easily see it either. So, and there's a smell, there's like a, there's a smell to healing tissue. And then there's especially a smell to healing tissue tissue that is tucked up on the inside of your abdominal cavity. Right. So like your pelvic cavity. Um, so we have a lot of those conversations around, like the very first thing I always say is when I was seeing folks immediately, um, to teach them to dilate is have you looked at your new vagina? And because that's also a place that we want to start from a trauma informed place, because I need to know what their relationship with that part of their body is in general. I also, if there's someone who's like, oh, I'm really squeamish, we got to set good expectations literally from moment one, because it, it is a wound. Um, and so we have to talk about like, all right, I would, here are the things that we need to go through in this visit and let's come up with a plan for how we can get you there. So I, I want you to know what it feels like to dilate fully. I would also like for you to know that you can confidently dilate fully yourself. Um, and how can we best make that happen? Um, the very first thing of expectation set of expectations also includes like what your vagina looks like now is not what it's going to look like four weeks from now is not what it's going to look like six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, six months, one year from now. And so reminding people of that and reminding people that like you, we, the only way out of this is through and to trust the process is a really big part of the expectation setting as well. That's a great point too. And cause sometimes I have to be like, all right, cool your jets. Like we are not reoperating on this. This is fresh tissue. It's a, like you said, it's a wound. If you go back in there and try to tweak this or make your labia, you know, this, you're going to just kill that tissue and it's going to fall off. So creating expectations of how things look, you know, one thing we always say in gynecology is the labia are sisters, not twins. So this applies here as well, you know, and don't, um, don't overly critique yourself. And I always say, give yourself grace because you need to heal. Christina, have you noticed, uh, patients that maybe come in pre-op before the surgery that they're, that you have to work on pelvic floor muscle tension in order to have the surgery be more successful? Is there any correlation that you've seen clinically or that is supported by the literature on getting physical therapy prior to having the surgery? 
Why, Stephanie? I'm so glad you've asked. Um, this is the thing I care a lot about, it, and it's complicated. So oftentimes people who are getting this surgery actually don't have very much access to pelvic floor physical therapy preoperatively. Um, that could be because of system things, right? They're traveling and all of that could also be because of dysphoria. Like it can be very, very uncomfortable for people to interact. Like it doesn't feel safe for those folks to be in their bodies. Um, with the genitals that they, that they were born with. And so, and not to say that all trans folks experience dysphoria because they do not. Um, but that can be a, another big barrier to accessing, especially preoperative pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, so I did not plant this question, but I would have, because I'm, I'm currently working on a project to try and figure out if we can do like some of the more general pelvic floor education and kind of like a preoperative psychoeducational program to see if that could have like beneficial impacts on from the postoperative side. Um, the very limited literature that currently exists about preoperative pre-vaginoplasty pelvic floor physical therapy is that yes, we see improved outcomes. Um, and we also know that some people do drop out of those programs because of uh they, they will tell you that they experienced dysphoria and it was uncomfortable for them. So it's very nuanced. Um, I think that there would be so much potential for improved outcomes um, and the barriers are can be very significant. I love that so much too, especially around um, trying to treat some of the genital like dysphoria that folks have that sometimes I'm not aware of until it's too late until they're like, I couldn't do it. I couldn't dilate. I couldn't, I hate this part of my, you know, it's bringing up too much for me. And I would love to have folks do physical therapy pre-op. Um, the issue for us is resources. You know, the physical therapist time is so valuable and they're already so busy and so overbooked and overworked. And, um, but I, I would love that. I would love that. So how do you help patients overcome or deal with some of this dysphoria, Christina, in the preoperative operative phase? Because I feel like that would be so, especially after what Dr. Heyer said, that, that would be extremely important in having a successful surgery in order to start feeling safe in this body that you identify with. Yeah. So in private practice, I am seeing more people who are interested um, and able to both from like an accessibility standpoint in terms of like time time resources, financial resources, those sorts of resources, as well as from emotional resources um, to be able to plan like, okay, this is the surgery I'm interested in having. I really want to set myself up for success. What can I do? Um, and in those cases, it's actually really not very dissimilar to the things that I teach my pregnant patients or my patients who are trying to conceive um, in terms of what is your current pelvic floor mobility like. So I don't care very much about strength, but I do want them to have good mobility and control, um, good ability to open up, like do hip openers and have good flexibility and control mobility through their hips, um, as well as their lower abdomens. Um, so, and then I give all of that coaching based on what the patient in front of me is able to do. So I, I will ask questions like, you know, what is your relationship with that part of your body? Are you able to look at, so if, are you able to feel your rectum? Does that, how does that feel if you check in with yourself? Can you feel when you take a deep breath in that your rectum drops down gently into the seat below you? So I will then, I will try and use non-gendered anatomical terms. So I will stay away from talking about the penis. I typically stay away from talking about the perineum as well, because sometimes people don't know what it is. Um, although I have counseled many a patient about where their taint is. And that is a gender neutral term, my friends. So, um, <laughs> so 
using as much anatomical, but like anatomy that every single person, regardless of their genitals has, um, being really open and honest with patients around like, what is this experience like for you? Are there words you would prefer me use or words you prefer me not use? Um, I have an external ultrasound, like live action ultrasound unit that I will use. And that doesn't, it doesn't matter what your, what genitals you have. Um, and I can't see your genitals via that. So that's been really helpful. Um, so yeah, I think those are, those are the things that are coming to mind. You ever use bio external biofeedback? I haven't, um, you could, especially like external, like extra anally, um, but I have not. And what, something that has come up for me, and we talked a little bit about this before we went on, is the two of you know each other, you've worked together. Um, Dr. Heyer, you talked about the importance of, uh, of your team and that care uh, for this population is really a team sport. How many people would you say, I, I, you don't have to be specific, but let's say we're talking about here in the United States, have access to the team? You know, like, or, or if you if you are a person who is interested in this surgery, where do you have to look for this team? I think in the current state, most folks are getting taken care of by a team of people. The old way, so before we had um, more insurance coverage of the surgery, I, it was generally like a solo center or there was way less access to surgeons because fewer people were doing this. Um, but I do think that now you are seeing folks going to like a major, like most major cities now have someone doing gender, at least one group doing gender affirming care and, and, and gender affirming bottom surgeries. So I think what ends up happening is you go to the big city where you live, um, that you can get to and you'll, you'll find people. And also with organizations like WPATH, the world professional association for trans health, as well as us path, you know, they're really toting that like, this is the best care, you know, having this team, having behavioral health, having physical therapy, having your surgeon, you know, that is wraparound care for folks and people do better. And so the word is out, um, you know, that this is really to be expected. I do think that there continue, at least from a pelvic floor standpoint to be, so I do, I think I've heard of a lot of patients being able to access um, maybe one-off public for physical therapy services in the best case scenario, especially when people are traveling. Um, and a lot of behavioral health, which is part of the WPATH guidelines, which is why I think that's, there's something in that. Um, but I still am seeing a lot of people, a lot of surgeons are not necessary. There is no, it's not guaranteed that they even receive a pelvic floor physical therapy referral after, after vaginoplasty. Um, even if those services are maybe available, I think probably for a lot of the reasons you already mentioned, Dr. Heyer, in terms of like those physical therapists are seeing a lot of different types of patients, um, on a lot of different teams and they don't have a lot of access in their schedules. So Stephanie, when you have patients that are calling your clinic for physical therapy, are they referred by a local physician or is this someone who's had uh, surgery and was not referred to physical therapy and is looking because they feel like they need this care? 
typically they are referred by a physician. Um, very rarely do I have people in this population who will self-refer. And how about you, Christina or, or Dr. Heyer? Have you had people who are sort of self-referring or looking I, for you outside of, you know, from a physician? I have a couple, like very few, and that's primarily from Instagram of all places. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Dr. Heyer and I will like, we communicate even though I'm not outside the system now and we'll still have some shared patients. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't have people that self-refer, but I will have people that find me, um, you know, like they went somewhere else and had surgery in another state. And I'm always just so like, oh my gosh, I could not work this way, but they, they have like no intentions of following up where they had the surgery, no plan. I mean, and, and so then I'll send them to physical therapy, you know, I mean, you can feel it, that pelvic floor. I'm like, you're fighting this. You got to learn how to relax this. Let's get you in with the physical therapist. So, but nobody is like, so they self-refer by finding me, I guess. And then I get them to the physical therapist sometimes, but I, the only surgeon that lets me know that she's sending me a patient is Dr. Bowers. And that, that's because like, you know, it's like, oh, hey, this patient's going to come to you for post-op care. Okay, great. But otherwise, people just kind of show up. I find it fascinating. What about the patients who are getting hysterectomies? Have you noticed what are their typical, typically their outcomes and how do they differ from these patients getting vaginoplasties as far as outcomes go and post-operative treatment? I think the hysterectomy folks um, are similar to the vaginoplasty folks. You know, everyone has a different goal, like post-op, what they're going to do. I mean, some vagin vaginoplasty or hysterectomy folks are having uh, penetrative penile intercourse. Some of them are not and never would and never will. And, you know, are planning to go on and get a phalloplasty or a metoidoplasty. Some folks, um, my gender diverse um, folks that are non-binary, some of them are not on hormones and they want to keep their ovaries, but they want the uterus and the cervix and the tubes out. So it's, I think everything you just have to find out from the patients. I do have also these patients have had serious trauma as well. And, um, I think it's validating to them to be like, Hey, you know, you need to go see physical therapy. And typically in GYN surgery, one of the things that we say is like, you don't do a hysterectomy on somebody to treat pain, right? Because that's going to rev up all your pain fibers. It's going to make your pain worse. It's going to make it more difficult post-op. But sometimes I do do a gender affirming hysterectomy in somebody that also has pelvic pain. And it's just a great resource to have them in with physical therapy. Because uh, again, like I can't sing the praises enough. I think it's so important to know your body, to feel your body, to touch your body. And for somebody to teach you how to do that is amazing. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I appreciate so much that you, Dr. Heyer, will very strongly distinguish between what surgery can do 
and what surgery cannot do and what surgery is likely to do and what surgery is not likely to do. So yes, for sure. Some of the time having hysterectomy can improve someone who also has pelvic pain can improve their pelvic pain. And also if the main reason people want a hysterectomy is because of pelvic pain, it's not the best for treatment, right? For that. Um, and so, and I also agree that there are so many different goals of people who are giving hysterectomies and my like personal, my personal professional opinion is that we don't refer for pelvic floor physical therapy after hysterectomies enough, just more generally, regardless of someone's gender identity. So I would love to see more uh, recommendations after histos because more referrals after histos, because I do think that we're missing people who could have a better quality of life. And, and again, not everyone's going to choose to opt into that for a million reasons, but I would like to see broader referrals more generally. Cool. And we've said a couple of times, uh, we've used the term uh, trauma, trauma-informed care. So Christina, can you uh, just give the listeners a little bit more information on what we're, what we're talking about when we're saying trauma-informed care? What does that mean? Yeah, the, the easiest definition I typically use is trauma-informed care is a commitment to continuing to try to reduce our own propensity for perpetuating harm. And what that means is just recognizing that we are, we have the capability of harming people and, and doing harm to people, regardless of our good intentions. And so continuing to make conscious decisions over and over again, to try and reduce that potential. So when we're talking about um, working with trans women who are coming in for vaginoplasty, for example, it's knowing some of the things that could, that are more likely to contribute to trauma in that population. Um, so things like being misgendered or misnamed or mispronounced, um, things like uh, knowing that some people may experience dysphoria or discomfort with certain parts of their body. And so being conscientious about how we're communicating about those body parts, checking in with patients around what what words feel affirming and good to them as opposed to feeling misgendering or or othering in some way. Um, those are things that I typically think of. Dr. Heyer, are there other things that immediately come to mind for you? I think one of the things for me around trauma-informed care is really trying to be the best advocate for the patients as well. And like um, one experience that happens um, is people will be with their family member who's misgendering them, a spouse, an aunt, a mother. And I usually say, oh, I'm sorry. Am I using incorrect pronouns? Like, can we talk about this? Because this is really awful what you're doing to this human who is here to have surgery and they've been taking hormones and they've done the legal name change and gender change. And you are here calling them. I mean, it's, to me, it's almost like a, they're calling them a profanity. It's so incredibly disrespectful. And I get really fired up and I'm like, I just want you to know that I hear what you're saying. And if this, and some people are like, no, it's okay. And, you know, I, we have certainly have a representation of gender diverse folks in, in the celebrity population. And so some of them, you know, they choose the name and, and, you know, how they interact with their family that I, I think that's my piece too, is, is introducing myself and trying to be an advocate for them. And, and, and I say to them, like, I, I want you to feel safe. And if I say anything that makes you uncomfortable, I want you to tell me because I won't know if you don't tell me. So I think that's, 
the other piece for me is like just really kind of advocating for them and letting them know that I'm their advocate. Well, and I think one of the things that's hard about trauma-informed care is you can do things the most trauma-informed way and people, and it can still be not the right thing for the person in front of you. And that's so right. there's, you, I mean, I think it's very obvious through this entire conversation, both you, Dr. Heyer, and I like continue to talk about like, well, in these instances and in these instances, because everyone's different, everyone's relationship with their body's different, with their gender identity is different, with their sex life is different. And so um, you the thing that I think is so important about trauma-informed care and knowing it, especially as we continue to push our professions forward and really hold ourselves and our colleagues to higher standards in regards to this, is that you can do everything exactly right in by like trauma-informed, the trauma-informed handbook, if that were a thing that existed, and it can still be the wrong thing for your patient. You can still perpetuate mm -hmm. harm. And so keeping lines of communication open around please tell me if I get this wrong. Please tell me, how is that landing for you? Please tell me if something I say doesn't land or if I'm in the wrong. Um, I being very honest and, and, you know, coming to the patient experience with some amount of like humility and recognition that the person in front of you, your patient knows themselves better than you possibly could. Um, and, and really remembering that I think is an, is another big important part of trauma-informed care. And I think our patients too, so often will not correct and not, you know, they just sit there and let the language go or let the wrong name or, and, and I want, I want to continue to try to be the advocate for them and make sure they know that they can correct it. And, you know, I know that's something I appreciate so much about you. So what advice do you have to healthcare providers who are getting into this space or who are having more patients come to them um, with these issues? What are some of your advice to help these healthcare providers provide the most sensitive, best care that they can to this population? You need to really join WPATH. Um, the, you know, it's a team of professionals that are doing this work. It's very interdepartmental from behavioral health to education, to physical therapy. I mean, it, there's so many resources there. So you need to find your tribe, um, find your WPATH and can continue to, to learn and your program will grow because word of mouth is huge. And that's how, you know, patients find us. Um, the, I mean, the hospital doesn't really advertise per se, like, Hey, come get your vagina over here, but people talk and, um, you know, once you start, you're going to see a lot, a lot of folks that need this care. I think it's really important to be very honest with yourself about what your own biases are and what your own competencies are. So I think it can be tempting to kind of lump affirming care into this like politically correct space and, and people want to provide it because it's the right thing to do um, without taking the time to examine their own biases that are going to show up regardless of whether or not they intend for them to. Um, and that can have such a huge impact. So trans patients in general know, even if they have themselves not experienced medical trauma, know that medical trauma happens at a much higher incidence in the transgender 
population. Um, and so it's, they're already very guarded and rightfully so. And so it is way more harmful for a person to go to, to be hesitant about going to care and like doing it anyway, but knowing that it could go poorly and having signs that it might go poorly than if they go to a place that they assume to be safe, that they have like let themselves trust that these people in this situation can be safe for them and then to have it be harmful and damaging. Um, so with that, being really honest about who you can help um, and, you know, what feels good for you. I mean, we're still having the conversation in pelvic floor physical therapy about whether or not we're all seeing cisgender men. And so like being really honest about what about that is about anatomy and like competency and dealing with specific types of anatomy. Um, what of that is about dealing with our own, you know, trauma or bias or experiences um, and like doing the work to know that about ourselves before we start to advertise for these types of programs, because there is such a huge need for it. And I, I do trauma-informed care trainings and I talk to lots of pelvic floor physical therapists and like not everyone currently is a safe person for trans and non-binary people. And that that's okay. We can't, we are not all for everybody. We talk all the time about how, um, especially when in the private practice conversation around like finding patients, obviously it's different. If you're in a public health care system, like you got to make sure you have the competencies to see the patients that are coming your, that are directed your way in the system. But in private practice, we're already often talking about like, who are the right patients for us? Can we find referrals for people that aren't a good fit? Um, and this, I think I, I wish it weren't this way because I want there to be so much more care for so many of these folks. And I worry about the long-term lasting damage of pe to people who like trusted that they were going to get their needs met and then were traumatized in the system. So I, that's not like my favorite answer. Um, but I think that that is, that's my advice for both providers who are interested in doing this work, as well as for patients who are looking for providers who do this work. I think that is extremely wise advice. And um, I really appreciate you both coming on this podcast. In talking about this, I hope that our listeners have learned a lot about this population, feel a little bit more comfortable talking about these issues because we are going to be seeing patients, even if it's not for pelvic floor physical therapy, we are seeing patients uh, who are gender diverse and are all types of genders. And we need to be able to provide good care to people or else if we feel like we can't make sure that we have referrals that we can do that for. So I just want to thank you for both of you coming on tonight. Yeah, it was so fun. It was, it was a pleasure. I enjoy all the work that you all do and I appreciate you. Oh, well, we're thrilled that you're such a big proponent of physical therapy. Um, and before we close thing, things out, I always ask everyone this last question um, uh, for the podcast, and that's knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to your younger self? So it could be right out of medical school or right out of uh, PT school. Um, so, uh, Christina, we'll start with you. What advice would you give to your younger self? If you don't change your environment, it'll change you. And so even if the job that you think you want isn't immediately the job that is accessible to you, finding an environment that does foster the things that you're interested in your own personal and professional growth, I think is hugely important. Right. And Dr. Heyer? Um, I would say the hard work is always worth it. You know, it definitely 
pays off. A lot of times the easy road, gosh, that looks really nice. But, you know, if you put, if you invest in yourself, there's going to be amazing things that come. So yeah, just keep going. Yeah. That extra mile is rarely crowded, right? Right. <laughs> so true. Well, before we wrap things up, where can people find you guys? If, um, if they have questions, if, you know, they want to seek out your advice. Christina, you had mentioned Instagram. Go ahead. Sh- yeah, sh- in- shout out your business. Shout out your Instagram. Yeah. Instagram's a great place to find me. Um, it's my first dot last name uh, on Instagram. And yeah, if you reach out in my DMs, I read I read all those things. Sometimes it takes me a little while, but I, I will get to it. Cool. And Dr. Heyer, where can people find you? I mean, just... I don't know. I don't have Instagram. I don't have Twitter. I am like just old and I need someone to educate (laughs) me on this stuff, but, um, you can email me, I guess, or, um, you'll, you'll give my bio. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, or you know what? Tell Christina and she'll come. <laughs> I was just gonna say, Jen. Uh, right. We'll have we'll have wine, and I'll I'll teach you about about. Yeah, Christi- Oh my God, you place. need to do that. Yeah, Christina <laughs> will find me. Send it to Christina. Yeah, and Great. and pe- people people will know where you work, right? So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so don't worry about it. People know where you work, and and we'll have some links and things like that uh, at, at the podcast website at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. Uh, so if you didn't get all of this information, you can go there and you can read the full transcript of today's conversation and get some helpful links. We'll link to WPATH and USPATH as well. Um, and any other pertinent links you guys think that we should have on there, we should have on there. We will have on there. So um, yeah, like Stephanie said, thank you both. Thank you to Christina, Dr. Heyer. Stephanie, thank you so much for bringing uh, this topic up on the podcast. This was great. Um, So thank you all so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah. And thank you everyone for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.